Hi, my name is Molly Schulte-Tucker, and I have the privilege of pastoring the good people of Ridgewood Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. We are in the season of Lent, or the 40-ish days that lead up to Easter Sunday. Lent is typically a time of self-reflection where we might fast from something, or we may take on a spiritual practice that helps us deepen our faith or spiritual identity. Jesus warned Pharisees of public prayers that were spiritually empty. So in following Jesus, how you decide to observe Lent isn't for show for others, but it is something meaningful for you. As a church, we are in a Lenten series called How to Have an Enemy, exploring what it means to be a Christian and also have anger or distrust or enemies, especially in a world and a country divided by politics and policies and by biases and prejudice. We recognize that we are only human, but as Christians, we're called to live differently, and that may take some inner work. That even takes knowing how to have an enemy. As always, you are welcome to hear these sermons live on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the Ridgewood Baptist Church Sanctuary or through our live stream available on Facebook. We hope to see you soon. Today's scripture comes from the book of Mark. chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition. That's the NRSV UE LMNOP. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, you are my son, the beloved with you, I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, tested by Satan. And he was with the wild beast and the angels waited upon him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is our first Sunday of Lent. If you didn't notice, if you were here last week, the room might look a little bit different Uh, than when you were in here last Sunday. And if you heard a sound when you came into the sanctuary that felt like Jesus was breaking back into the world, that was the Jenga pieces falling on the back table, which was our uh, community gathering play event today. You're probably thinking Lent is very pensive and prayerful, and why are we playing games? Well, because we're fun. That would be the first answer. But second would be, that's intentional. Those games are not just for the people who are now in children's church. 
They are for all of you. We'll get to that in just a moment. We are embarking upon the journey of Lent that began with Ash Wednesday, this past Wednesday. It's 40 days, and if you've started adding those up on your fingers and you think, wait a second, we're at more than 40 days, you are correct. Technically, we don't count the Sundays or the Sabbath during Lent as part of those 40 days. So if you've given up chocolate, eat all the Hershey's you want on Sundays, it doesn't count. But as we've done, I think this is our fourth year of giving instead of, or fourth year of giving instead of giving up, it's our fourth year, I think. What some folks do, instead of giving up something, you take on a practice. So it's the same intent of we fast from something and that brings us closer to the heart of God, but maybe you want to undertake a practice and that brings you closer to the heart of God. Several years ago, I took up the practice of finding a different prayer labyrinth to walk each week during Lent. Uh, maybe it's that you want to get up at 6.30 a.m. every day and go for a walk. Or maybe it's a podcast you're going to listen to each day. Maybe it's you're actually going to water your plants during Lent. I didn't make that commitment because I know I can't keep it. So um, I invite you to join in an intentional practice of community in the back of the sanctuary on Sunday mornings. I know 10.30 scares some of you, so let's say 10.40, okay? 10.40, do you think that you could get to the back of the sanctuary and engage in the growing number of games we'll have back there each, each week? 10.40, not 10.30, because 10.30 might be too early, right? 10.40... Could you do it? Could you even play with someone who is not in your same generation? Oh, I just saw some eyebrow. Oh, well, you can. And here's the thing. That's not just, just picking on you wise ones, okay? That's saying you young ones. I mean, everyone's young at heart, but you young ones. Could you engage with folks who are maybe not in school Maybe who are a little older? Can we get a knot? We can do this. 1040, back of the sanctuary. If you had a Lenten commitment, now you have another one, all right? This is kind of to play on our theme of Lent, how to have an enemy. It's, we're jokingly referring to the games in the back as enemy practice, all right? It's based on a book by Reverend Melissa Flora Bixler. You'll hear her name several times through Lent. She is a Mennonite minister and a scholar because we're going to be talking about some heavy topics here. Because we are human beings and we have been accustomed to and we have been trained for or we have been traumatized to have enemies. Here's what we mean by the word enemy. I'll go with Merriam-Webster first. An enemy is one that is antagonistic to another, especially one seeking to injure, overthrow, or confound an opponent. Melissa Flora Bixler's definition, the word describes a relationship between people, one that recognizes how a person uses their power, actively or passively, to harm or dominate another. Here's what she also notes. Power itself 
is not intrinsically bad. Power is a net neutral. We need power to act and make choices. We need power to assure our own thriving in the world. There is official power, which is power on paper, and there is unofficial power, or power that may be accumulated or earned or even assumed over time. When we talk about enemies, we are talking about two people, or we can even say two people groups maybe, when one has power over another and there is conflict over who should hold that power. I'll just sidestep to say a lot of times church hurt comes from when power on paper and unofficial power meet or don't match. To understand enmity, which is another word for enemies correctly, according to the author, we have to distinguish ourselves between the fear of losing power and the fear of being harmed. So here's a little secret, just so you know. Playing life-size Jenga in the back of the sanctuary has very little to do with losing power or fearing harm, unless you were standing in the wake of that Jenga tower, which could harm you. It does have to do with forming relationships with one another, which I think is a great intentional practice. So we'll have some play with it, all right? But here's what does have to do with having an enemy. Really, the enemy is who we're talking about today. As soon as Jesus is baptized, he is sent into the desert by the Spirit. And while he was there for 40 days, he was tempted. That word can also be tested by Satan or the evil one or the tempter. And you may know, you've probably heard me say that Mark is my favorite gospel because Mark is efficient. Mark is to the point. He has few words, no fluff, but I got to say, this particular story, I think, leaves a little bit to be desired. So I'm going to lily pad over to the gospel of Matthew, and we're going to talk a little bit more. We can deduce that it was likely because Satan was testing Jesus before he went into ministries, ministry with his disciples. We, we can see why that would happen, right? Making sure he's the real deal. Are you really the son of God? Could your power actually fall? But if we sidestep to Matthew, and I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to give you the gist. Here's what happens. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter or the devil or Satan or whatever you want to call this being tells Jesus to turn the stones to bread playing on Jesus' physical needs, and Jesus refuses. Then the tempter places Jesus at the highest point of the temple and tells him to throw himself off, and Jesus says, no. He won't test God in that way. So lastly, the tempter took Jesus to a high mountain, and he looked over every kingdom of the world and he said, I will give you all of this if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus doesn't just say no. Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. 
He is no longer willing to engage with temptation at this point. He is at the end of the fasting journey. He is hangry at the moment, and he is out of patience with the tempter. See, I like to think the first two asks the tempter makes of Jesus have to do with the physical needs of Jesus and the physical safety of Jesus. And yes, they're testing God, but that last ask, pointing out the kingdom of the wor- kingdoms of the world, offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world, it's a little bit more psychological for Jesus. And Jesus is either so insulted, so annoyed, or so tempted that he dismisses the tempter from his presence entirely. Jesus did not fall to the temptation of power, thanks be to God. But we are not Jesus. We are a people, we are a country, whose very nation has been formed by taking other people's kingdoms or at least their homelands, or their bodies by enslavement and war and genocide, or believing that if people just did it our way, if they just believe what we believe, or knew what we know, or dress like we dress, or talk like we talk, all with the world, come to our side. We call that tribalism. That is also a universe in which we center ourselves. If everyone could be like us, believe like us, think like us, then all would be right with the world. Just like us. If it could just be like us. But Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And also, remember Jesus said, love your enemies. All of those commands are love. The story goes, it was World War I on Christmas Day. Two men in uniform approach each other across frozen ground, and the landscape is desecrated with ash and blood, and the soldiers stand looking at each other until one reaches into his pocket, takes out a cigar, and hands it to his enemy and says, Merry Christmas, the German and the French soldier, peace on Christmas Day. Something like movies are made of, right? It's kind of like a cosmic Hallmark movie, if you will. A brief armistice between the German and French and Scottish Scottish soldiers in the middle of the war. The 2004 film, Joyo Noel, someone speak French in here worse than me, depicted soldiers laying down weapons and singing Christmas carols with each other. One of the soldiers says famously, to die tomorrow is ever more absurd than dying yesterday. The movie tells us that once the armistice ends, those frontline soldiers refuse to pick up their guns again, and the armies are forced to move them back to send more soldiers forward who will actually fight on the front lines, and they punish the defecting soldiers. Can being enemies really give way to being friends? 
Hold that thought. Melissa Flora Bixler, who is the author of the book we're looking at during Lent, speaks about a time when she was serving as pastor, where on election day, ministers and people from churches in her area would come together at noon after they voted, and they would take communion together. The service was highly promoted, and it urged churches and Christians to gather around the unity of Christ at the table, because here before the table, they were one. They were one church. They were one in Christ. But what she reflected on later was that those who were in the churches who were primarily white, primarily middle to upper class. At the end of the day, the churches that gathered were relatively unaffected by who was elected to office. Their lives did not hang in the balance. They, uh, those who were non-white, those who were cisgendered, whether they were straight or financially stable or medically stable or earning a living wage, It matters a lot more to those who are seeking citizenship or lacking transportation or access to food or access to jobs or access to clean water. Their lives were directly affected by one election. So it turns out, in her words, that the kind that was achieved in ritual was not replicated in life. Unity, she found, was a myth. Can communion be a myth? Of course it can. As it turns out, the Christmas ceasefire during World War I was nothing like Hollywood depicted it to be. Officers, not just line soldiers, planned the truce long in advance. Even as Hollywood portrayed, it was a decision of those on the front line. The day was widely publicized. It was not organic on December 24th. And on December 26th, soldiers readily picked back up weapons and returned to war. Soldiers were noted to write home about that day the day they were able to rebuild trenches, to bury the dead, even some venturing across no man's land to talk to enemy soldiers. And historians suspect this might have been just a small spark in the growing anti-war sentiment at the time, but the truth is complicated. See, we like to believe that empathy and friendship and kindness are powerful forces because it's true. but so is war. Flora Bixler says, we are so invested in the myth of instantaneous friendship across enemy lines as a cure to our social ills because it offers a simple explanation for the troubles we face today. The trouble is that we have divided the world into us and them. Once we divide up the world in this way into friends and enemies, we are destined for binary thinking that leads to intractable conflict. To make matters worse, the only way to sustain our identity in these tribes is to believe in our rightness with the equal ferocity 
in the wrongness of others. To believe we are correct over and against others is the height of self-righteousness. Enemies are more than one-on-one relationships. Although they appear in those relationships. When we talk about enemies, we are talking about soldiers on the front lines, yes, but we have to recognize that they are shaped and taught and even commanded by officers who are influenced by generals, who are commanded by government leaders who feel the pressure of history and present day to do something. We recognize that when we approach or simply name enemies, we too have been shaped by our upbringing, pundits, Family, education, experiences, books, news channels, pain, religion. If our enemy's formation is complicated, yep, so is ours. But when the tempter shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world, Jesus commands him to get away. Could it be, perhaps, that the last temptation was really the ultimate test for Jesus. Not because he wanted power, but because imagine what would happen if he took over the power of kings and kingdoms. What if he had prevented the splintering in politics, tribalism and colonialism and racism and power structures that have relied on having and maintaining one group over another? What if Jesus could have started at the top of every throne rather than beginning in poverty and scandal, fighting systems of self-righteousness and power over power from the bottom up that would eventually kill him? Because, friends, that's not who Jesus is. God does not leverage power over others. In fact, in the personhood of Jesus, we find the exact opposite, that God became less. Here's the good news, whether you have asserted your power or been a victim of it. Jesus establishes accountability without punishment and justice without coercion. We said that together earlier. Did you catch that? Jesus becomes a new creation, and he invites those who wish to join it to leave behind their lives and follow him. In other words, we all have something to own. We all have apologies to make. We have forgiveness to receive and forgiveness to offer. We have been victims and victimizers. We have been the oppressed and the oppressor. But friends, Jesus is calling us to learn that our redemption from sin and death is also redemption from devastation and violence we enact on one another. Jesus has invited us away from a shot-for-shot mentality, away from thinking that, that power must be maintained at any cost. Jesus invites us into a third way of thinking. As people of faith, Jesus calls us to recognize the temptation of self-righteousness and to live differently. And that, 
Jesus shows us. It's how to have an enemy. Amen.